0: This is the How The Fuck Podcast. Each week, we interview creative leaders and marketing professionals from around the world. From those interviews, we bring you unique advice that's based only in real practical experience that will help you to grow your business, get ahead in your professional life and satisfy your hunger to learn new ideas. Hello and welcome to the podcast today. I'm talking to MJ Peters, VP of Marketing at Firetrace and host of the Industrial Marketer podcast. MJ has worked manufacturing companies her whole career across product and marketing. She's largely a self-taught marketer and she's a pro in marketing strategy and inbound demand generation. In this interview, we start with MJ's career and the differences in marketing in manufacturing rather than software before covering techniques for marketing strategy and breaking into new customer segments. You can expect to learn how to gather customer insights that insight should influence your business model, building out marketing hypotheses and how to experiment across channels, content type and content topic to determine what resonates with your audience. I found this so useful if anyone is setting up a new marketing function in their company or wants to launch new products then this is a really useful podcast to listen to. I hope you enjoy it if you do come follow us Uh, make sure you don't miss next week's one. Cheers! So, as we normally do, I think it would be great to start with the basics. So, where did you start? How did you get into marketing?
1: So, I started my career on the HAMA Future Leaders program. So, HAMA is a global company that buys small to medium sized manufacturers all around the world. They're really focused in the US and the UK right now, but quickly expanding in both India and China. And this program allows you to go work for four of their different operating companies within the span of two years. So you spend about six months each. And so you learn from business models, um, different cultures. You know, I spent some time in the UK and in China and different operating parts of the business. So you've got manufacturing, sales, marketing, uh, new product development. So I spent a little bit of time in all of those different areas. And marketing was the area of the business that, I thought was the most interesting. I like being able to break down the complex, and I like the fact that you can kind of spot trends that are a little bit more qualitative. I think you can really get a feel for marketing and, and start to connect that to wider business results. So after that program, I took my first permanent position, as they call it, quote unquote, uh, at one of the operating companies as a product manager. But I was also doing all of the communications and demand gen for them as well, and then. Got my first opportunity to step into a leadership role at Firetrace, which is another Hama operating company, leading a team of four right now. And we do product management, global strategic marketing, and then communications and demand gen as well.
0: Wow, that's an interesting journey. And that program sounds really cool to get into multiple roles and experiment with what you like as well. So you joined Firetrace as a director straight away. I mean, how do you manage both product and marketing at the same time, because I personally think marketing is a very full job. So many different elements to it that you could spend time on. So how do you manage that?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. I think there are some advantages to managing both product management and marketing because when you're in marketing in order to be successful on the kind of downstream demand generation and product positioning side of the ball, you have to really deeply understand the customer. And that's the same foundation that you can apply to the upstream side of the ball or or the product management in terms of identifying where you can add value through product development and how you can make sure that your new product development process is delivering products that people really want. And then you can use that same lens to do things like product lifecycle management. So because of the work I do for my role in marketing anyway, which is interviewing customers, trying to understand, their problems, their pain points, and what they're trying to achieve in their role, I'm able to look at our product line and say, okay, well, these products that we launched 10 years ago are not delivering value to a big enough subset of customers that we really need to be supporting them in our range anymore. So that drives decisions like end of life. So I think there's a lot of synergies between marketing and product management that makes it a natural combination, even though I don't think it's a very common combination in a lot of industries.
0: Yeah, definitely. It sounds like there's a lot of overlap. And as well, if you get that kind of customer insight that says you need to end of life a product, then leading the product team gives you a bit more oversight and ability to action that quicker.
1: Yes, having a team of four and doing all of communications and all of product management is definitely a challenge.
0: Have you always worked in manufacturing and are there any lessons you think you can pull over from the software side?
1: Yeah, I've, I've actually always worked in manufacturing companies, uh, but I think manufacturing can definitely learn from the way that software companies go to market and the way they position their products and, and grow demand. And vice versa, I think there's probably things from manufacturing companies that are very applicable to software companies as well, just because at the end of the day, everybody's marketing to humans, and uh, everybody's marketing to other businesses. So there's a lot of commonalities, and, and I think the foundations at the end of the day are the same for both types of companies.
0: Mm-hmm. What would you say would be the differences between the two?
1: The obvious difference for me is that the product that I market is a one-time hardware sale. So I don't have to worry as much about renewal. I mean, obviously we want to deliver an excellent customer experience because if somebody buys a one-time hardware purchase for us, then it could be that when they scale their business, there's more equipment that they want to protect down the line. So that's kind of our version of a renewal, but it's not as baked in as it would be in a software business model. And then the other piece of it I think is just software as a service business models really emphasize marketing communications in a way that manufacturing hasn't in the past. So when I borrow marketing tactics from B2B SaaS and, and from the startup world it's seen as extremely forward thinking and innovative in the manufacturing environment. Which is honestly it's it's really great for me because I can see what people are testing and experimenting with and what's working and what's not. And then I can bring it to my industry and kind of cherry pick those things that are working the best uh, and kind of see results right away. So it's great because I can learn from others' failures, more or less.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Like healthcare, uh, which is the industry that I've um, kind of most recently worked in, manufacturing is quite a traditional industry and they don't seem to treat marketing in the same way. Like you can have so much impact bringing in innovative methods to an industry that hasn't quite caught up.
1: Yeah. And I think the trap that probably companies fall into when you talk about manufacturing or healthcare being a traditional industry is that they assume that because the marketing of most players in that industry is still traditional, that that is what the customers want to hear. And that's how the customers want to interact with the business. And it's not a good assumption to make because what what I found is that when you experiment with new digital techniques, you can reach customers at scale, really cost effectively, and you can build a relationship with them in a way that you never would have been able to before. So just because somebody works at a machine shop instead of, you know, an enterprise company that you might sell B2B SaaS to doesn't mean that you can't connect with them digitally. And So I think it's always worth trying connecting with customers in different ways, whether the rest of the industry is doing so or not, because only through experimentation can you really identify what's going to work for your specific company. And I think that's true, whether you're a manufacturing company or a B2B SaaS company or any other kind of company. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, definitely. And at the end of the day, they're still being marketed to by the rest of the world. And just because your industry is traditional doesn't mean that the rest of what they're seeing is traditional. You have to keep that in mind. There's an expectation, the level of which is being risen by the most innovative companies.
1: Yeah. I mean, and they're still being marketed to by consumer brands as well, which are doing totally different. So everybody's a person, you know, when you go, when you go home at the end of the day, you, <laughs> you become a consumer, even though you're a B2B buyer from nine to five.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So just, I think for those people who don't know, would you mind explaining just a little bit about FireTrace? what they do.
1: Yeah, so we provide fire protection systems for high-risk equipment. So where most businesses or, you know, government buildings, public places can get away with just your standard sprinkler system or a fire extinguisher, several fire extinguishers, we cater to businesses that that are running equipment that is particularly susceptible to fire. And so our systems are specialized for those applications. So examples are... Precision machining equipment, metalworking equipment, as well as wind turbines—those things are more likely to catch on fire than the average thing you might have sitting around. Uh, so, so they need kind of an enhanced level of protection, which is what our systems are really designed to provide.
0: So, who would you say your customer is? Who do you target with your marketing?
1: We have a couple of different segments in our business. So, I mentioned wind turbines. Uh, so, people who own and operate wind farms, as well as the manufacturers of those turbines, precision machine shops. So a lot of times that'll be a shop owner who has a small business or a larger medical device manufacturer that has machining as part of their manufacturing process, as well as a couple other segments, but those are some of the key ones.
0: So we talked about this briefly before we started recording, um, and I know you've been running a lot of experiments to, to learn what reaches your customers best. What kind of experimentation techniques have you been using?
1: So it varies from segment to segment. And the thing that's been really beneficial for us to learn is that in our business, some of the end segments that we're marketing to are a lot more consolidated. And what I mean by that is, if you take the wind energy market, for example, there are probably only 50 major players that kind of own and operate wind farms globally. Whereas in the machining market, there's 2000 machine shops in the state of California alone. So to reach the 50 people that are decision makers in the wind energy market is a lot different than trying to reach the thousands of machine shop owners in the U.S., let alone globally. Mm -hmm. So on the machine side of the business, we've been having a lot of success with social media. So creating content and guaranteeing delivery of content to the right kind of buyer, leveraging paid social tools. And then on the wind energy side of the business, what we're going to start pushing a little bit more is creating longer form content that you know those types of buyers can't get anywhere else and using that to kind of open doors for our sales team which is going to look a lot more like an enterprise sales team
0: nice so so far you've experimented with multiple types of content in each segment to see which works the best i'm really interested to know because we interviewed chris walker on this podcast, and he obviously has some innovative ways of thinking about content. Do you believe in his way of thinking, and how has he influenced the way you work at the moment?
1: I was was actually Chris's first client in his current... So we started working together in April of 2019, so that was kind of right when he transitioned out of the startup that he was working in, and, and, you know, went out on his own. Hmm. And, I mean, at that time, it was just a a no-brainer for me to start working with him, because he's just really smart, you know, and and the way he talks about things, they make sense, right? So I figured it's worth trying, you know, and what we found is in some segments of our business, that is the the way he positions content and the way he uses it to drive business results and kind of the core of his strategy that he always talks about in his LinkedIn posts and and other media is going to work really well for certain segments of our business. I I mentioned machining, It, it works great. So I think we got a lot out of working with him and uh, I think companies should test some of the stuff that he talks about because at the end of the day, that's really the only way you're going to find out whether something's going to work for your business.
0: For anyone who hasn't seen or listened to that interview yet, go and check it out now and go and follow Chris on LinkedIn because ultimately he's going to have some very useful things that you can test and bring into your own business and marketing plan. So I think it'd be interesting to know how you approach breaking into a new segment. Could you walk us through that?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So the first thing that we do is we spend anywhere from six weeks to three, four months, getting in touch with anybody who will talk to us that is in that segment. And that's especially important if it's a segment that you don't sell into today, or that you sell into, but you feel you're selling into with limited success. And so I will, even as the VP of marketing, I will cold call people and just ask them, hey, can I can I talk to you for 20 minutes about your job role, your organization, where you're going, what is less than ideal for you? And once you kind of accumulate 10, 12, 15 conversations with all different stakeholders, so whether that's in our business, it could be an insurance provider, it could be a wind farm operator, it could be a manufacturer of wind turbines, you talk to 10 to 15 people and some definite trends start to emerge. And you can kind of conceptualize and visualize what the business model for delivering value to your customers should look like, which is going to be different industry to industry. And therefore within that, what activities are going to be the most important and how should you kind of deploy your team to make sure that you have the best success in that market. And of course, what product modifications do you need to make? Or how do you need to position yourself against competitors? And what do you need to say about your product to be hitting the right notes with the prospective buyers? So all of that comes from that initial research phase.
0: Can you tell me a bit more about the kind of questions you're asking people? Do you ask the same questions across the board to pull out themes?
1: On a very basic level, we do ask the same questions to all of them. But what I do to prepare for this kind of interview is I'll just take a blank... Word document and I will write down who is this person, what do I want to learn from them, and what am I going to do with that information. And once you've written down those two things, you kind of have to force yourself to write them down because you assume that you already know the answers to those questions, but it's, it's very useful to just go through that exercise. The questions that you want to answer will then just kind of pour out of your head because you need to ask the question to figure out what it is that you want to learn and you're going to need to figure out very specific things in order to use them appropriately. So write down those three things right before you do a customer interview and I think you will get a lot more out of it than you otherwise would.
0: So what do you do with the insight that you get from those interviews?
1: A lot of the time when you are trying to break into a new market, the way that you do business doesn't make sense for that market compared to the markets that you are currently selling into. So one of the most useful applications in my experience for customer insight is, does your existing business model make sense? And what I mean by that is with Firetrace, we wanted to get into a market like the wind farm market, for example, where there's a very consolidated number of buyers and our current business model is we sell through a network of over 500 distributors. But it doesn't make sense to try to connect with 50 buyers using 500 distributors because you're going to spend more time training the distributors than it would take you to literally pick up the phone and call every single one of those buyers. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know that the market's consolidated, then you don't know that your business model is wrong. So you need to do that research to understand who you're trying to sell to and how you should be selling to them.
0: So let's take that consolidated market as an example. How did you decide to approach them after you had done the customer insight interviews?
1: So a combination of both for a consolidated industry, you want to spend more time creating really high quality content because there's only 50 buyers that you need to connect with. And you know, if you can get a really high quality piece of content, it just is more likely to open doors. And then, yeah, you want to design a customer-centric sales process and make sure that you have a solid discovery process, get the right facts, answer the customer's questions. So in a consolidated industry, I think it's extremely important that sales and marketing have a very, very strong relationship.
0: Perfect. So if I could just quickly summarize what I see as maybe three steps before you begin to experiment and iterate, and those would be the first one, of customer discovery. The second one of leveraging that insight to bring it into your business model to make sure your business model is robust and to, if it's not, hypothesize which business model will work. And step three, to sort of set a marketing strategy and deploy your team in ways that will best meet the needs of this market. Perfect, so if I could just quickly summarize what I see as three steps that you have to do before you begin to experiment and iterate in a new segment, for those people who are listening at home, just to make it really clear. So the first one is customer discovery, getting to know your customer and don't hesitate to cold call them. Like I know a lot of people worry about just calling up people and and getting their time. Honestly, people don't mind as much as you think. Second step is about leveraging that insight, bringing it into your business model and testing your business model, making sure it's robust and your hypothesis work in this environment. And step three is about creating a marketing strategy, deploying your team in the best way, working out what kind of content will work to meet the needs of your customer, and how can you help design a sales process that will get the best out of your customer and your sales team. So moving on, one question that's been sort of burning in my mind is how do you create content for machine workers and wind turbine people? I mean, that's quite niche, so how have you managed it?
1: Well, if you have a fire in a wind turbine, the whole turbine probably burns down. So because they're in the middle of nowhere and there's not gonna be somebody standing there with a fire extinguisher to put it out. And it might even happen at the top of the turbine and nobody's gonna climb up there to fight a fire. So the whole turbine is gonna probably burn down and that would cost a wind farm owner $4.5 million on average. But the typical turbine owner doesn't necessarily know any of those things. And they also want to know in terms of risk and reward Should I make this investment? So, some of the content that we are going to increasingly focus on creating is just about understanding those risks and educating those buyers because it's not their job to think about fire protection all day. We want to make it as easy as possible for them to make an investment in our product.
0: What about content that's aimed purely at brand awareness? You know, solving problems of customers that uh, is unrelated to your product. So, not about educating them about. Um, you know, your specific area, but just helping them out in their other parts of their career.
1: I think that it is applicable. So we do that a lot in the machining side of our business um, because fundamentally most people are not ready to buy at any given point in time, but it's still valuable to build relationships with those people and to deliver value to them and to get their attention because it's more likely than, that at the moment they become ready to buy, that they will not forget about you and that they will choose you to solve that problem that they may have at that moment in time. So when you think about a machine shop, machine shops buy new machines, depending on their rate of growth, maybe every one to two years. Oh, so I can guarantee or, you know, get a lot closer to guaranteeing that a machine shop, Owner will remember to buy a fire trace system for their new machine when they do buy that machine if I have their attention for a larger amount of time during the 365 days between the last time they bought a fire trace system and now. Otherwise, they might not think about buying a fire trace system because fundamentally we sell an accessory, right? The machine is the most important purchase that they're making. So having their attention and just kind of being in the background, make sure that they don't forget about us as an accessory and, and they remember to make that purchase. And kind of that they feel like there's something missing before they buy our product. Because, I mean, every day that you don't buy our product, if you had a fire during one of those days, then you could lose that machine. And you just want the owners to know that because it's, it's actually in the best interest for their business to protect themselves against that risk as soon as they can after buying a new machine.
0: Let's get a bit more into experimentation. What are some good ways to experiment with your hypotheses that you've created during this time?
1: Yeah. So I think there's a bunch of things you can experiment with. They kind of fall into when you're talking about social media and content creation in particular, to me, they've really fallen into three buckets. One of them is audience. One of them is content. And one of them is kind of how you position the content in the feed. So audience on Facebook, there's a bunch of different audiences or ways to build audiences that you can use. Uh, We've found that job title and education are very accurate. Interest based targeting is not nearly as accurate, at least in our experience. So those two parameters are most important for us. But we kind of found that out through experimentation. Other businesses, age might be important, gender might be important, where in the world somebody lives might be really important. So build audiences and experiment with them. Do you, see, use, do you use um? And then the other thing you can kind of tweak is whether or not you're using audience expansion. So Facebook has an algorithm that will find more people based on the first couple of people that are engaging with your content. And we have basically found if your audience is really, really well set up, then audience expansion works great. But if there's anything wrong in your core audience, you will quickly start reaching a bunch of very irrelevant people when it comes to your content that you're promoting. If your audience is too broad and the content isn't you know, 90% relevant to them then and it's only 50% relevant to them, then... You know, the, the other 50% of irrelevancy is just going to get multiplied by that expansion algorithm. Uh, so we'll build different audiences, see which one works best. And then we'll diff- we'll build different types of content and, and write about different subjects. Uh, so, you know, short form blog posts work great for us. We've had some success with video. Um, and then the topics that we write about, you can tell from the comments that you get on your ads, whether they're really resonating or not. Mm-hmm. So, world people are really interested uh, about what the impact of COVID-19 is going to be on kind of the future of supply chain because as a machine shop in North America, you have a vested interest in more sourcing coming back to North America away from places like China and India. So our audience has been super engaged with stuff like that. There's been content we've put in the feed and it has totally missed the mark and people have told us about it in the comments or we just had really irrelevant comments. So we kind of gravitate away from those content topics. So with videos, we will usually use YouTube to promote those as opposed to Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, But yeah, we use those and I mean, we look at a couple of different things, right? Qualitatively, what kind of comments are you getting? Um, You can go into your Google Analytics and see how long are people spending on the page? Do they spend enough time that you can reasonably assume they read the whole thing or did they only spend 15 seconds and then leave? Because That means that your ad and the copy in the ad and the image resonated with them, but the actual content did not. You just have to be willing to admit that sometimes you produced a bad piece of content, which it's it's kind of a bummer, right? Because it takes time to produce content and you don't want to be a waste of time, but you can save yourself the additional cost of paying more to promote that, you know, you, you see some irrelevant feedback or some negative feedback and you say, okay, we're going to kill it, you know, and, and we can use this to make our next piece of content better. And we've absolutely benefited from that over the course of, you know, the 14, 15 months since we started doing this.
0: Thank you so much. That's been some really unique and useful insight. As a sort of final question, let's talk about your new podcast, because you've got eight episodes so far, and it's about marketing in the manufacturing industry. So why did you start the podcast?
1: It's something that I have built up some expertise in over the years. Um, Matt Chanella is my co-host. He... Interestingly, the first time he ever saw one of my text posts on LinkedIn, he immediately asked me if I wanted to do a podcast. He brings so much energy to it. So he was honestly like the driving force, but he, he kind of prodded me, and, and eventually I said, all right, let's do it. Um, and so I think it's really just about sharing some of the experience that I've had and that he's had and, and bringing on guests from both of our networks. So we both have pretty big networks of people within the industrial space, and. Bringing those two networks together, I think is a powerful thing, but since doing it, I realized that it's such an opportunity for me that I didn't necessarily anticipate. I get to talk to really smart people every single week. I get to kind of get different perspectives and, and grow my network, and it always stimulates thinking for me that allows me to make my own content better, whether that's in a text format or, or any other format. Um, so I think there's, there's been huge benefits both hopefully for our audience as well as for us as the hosts. Yeah. It's interesting just posting a lot of content on LinkedIn, like it allows you to connect with people, even if the content you're posting isn't directly relevant to them, right? Like I post mostly marketing content, but there's machine shop owners that are in my network that have connected with me just because I post a lot of content and I can connect with them. And it feels more authentic because they're like ah she's not just going to connect and pitch to me she's just very active on this platform so it's allowed me not only to grow my network with marketers but also with people that could be current or potential customers of my business definitely
0: and i always have this thought when i see you know a lot of people started are starting to post a lot on linkedin um when you first started did you have a bit of a fear of doing it oh yeah Oh,
1: yeah. It was funny. Uh, Chris, again, gave me the push to do it. I I was kind of thinking about doing it, and and he literally just said, well, just do it then, you know, and stop talking about it. Uh, And So so I did the 30-day challenge, and I posted every day for 30 days, and um, the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. Like, there's definitely been some times where, you know, I've had negative interactions with people, or or people have kind of put me down for doing it, but 95 plus percent of the feedback, maybe even 99 percent has been super positive and the effects have been super positive. So okay. uh, I know that it can be kind of terrifying to do it for the first time, but I think that most people would find that uh, it's it, what's in your head is a lot scarier than actually committing to it and doing it.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's like with everything, isn't it, in, in a way? Do did you, did you <laughs> use the post every day?
1: Um, I probably post four or five times a week. I did every day for 30 days just to get myself in the habit. But it's uh, it's pretty easy to maintain that habit once you've really established it for yourself. Even if you go down to two, three, four, five times a week instead of every day. If you're really using LinkedIn as a demand gen channel, then I think you should have a consistent message and a few core topics for sure. Right? That's a lot more valuable.
0: Brilliant. Dude, it's been so good talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on, MJ. I know everyone's going to really love everything that you've had to say. So thanks a lot for coming on and talking to me.
1: Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the opportunity.
0: Wow, what an interview. For those of you who don't know, we summarise all the insight from these interviews in a blog post on www.thefuck.com. It's much easier than than reading the full um, transcript of this interview. And you can refer back to that if you want to r- remember something Um, that was said in the interview. But yeah, it just highlights exactly what we thought was the best bits of insight and how we're going to take away um, and what we're going to take away from the interview ourselves. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please come and follow us on LinkedIn or subscribe on the website to make sure you don't miss the next one. We've got like five in backlog now and there's some really interesting stuff in there. I can't wait. If only I had more time, I could release them quicker. Um, Yes. So thank you very much for joining this time. See you next week. Cheers.